Welcome to Yo! Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Bathsheba DeMuth, Assistant Professor of History and Environment and Society at Brown University, a fellow of the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society, and an affiliated faculty member in Brown's programs in Native American and, and Indigenous Studies and Science and Technology Studies. DeMuth is an environmental historian specializing in the lands and seas of the Russian and North American Arctic. Her book, Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait, published in 2019, has garnered numerous awards and honors, including the NPR Library Journal, Barnes & Noble, and Kirkus Review Best Book of 2019 Award, the 2020 George Perkins Marsh Prize, the 2020 Hal K. Rothman Book Prize, the 2020 Eric Zensi Prize, the 2020 W. Turrentine Jackson Award, the 2020 William Mills Prize, and the 2020 Julia Ward Howe Nonfiction Prize. On May 4th, 2021, DeMuth will give a virtual talk, The Reindeer and the End of the World, as this year's Robert D. Clark Lecture in the Humanities. Thanks, Beth Sheba, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Paul. So what inspired you to move to the Arctic when you were 18 years old? It's not a typical choice for an 18 year old to make. No, it's true. Um, and I think it raised my parents' eyebrows a little bit and probably their blood pressure. Um, I, when I was finishing high school or of that age, I realized that I really didn't know what I wanted to study when I went to college. Um, and I felt like it was a big investment of both time and money to, to sort of not have a plan for. Um, so I convinced my parents I should take a gap year. And at the time, gap years were not quite as institutionalized or as normal as I think they have become. And so the place that I ended up finding some resources um, was a very kind of choose your own adventure organization in Massachusetts. Um, and one of the places that they had on their list was this little town called Old Crow, which is in the Yukon Territory in Canada. Um, and they, there was a family there that needed help with their dog team. So with absolutely no training in anything that would be remotely relevant, um, I bought a one-way ticket to Old Crow, um, planning on staying for a couple of months. Um, I had other, uh, other plans on my itinerary, none of which came to pass um, because I ended up staying in Old Crow for several years. So tell me one lesson that you learned from that first visit. That's a great question. Um, I learned so many, it's a little hard to, to piece them out. Um, I think the lesson that, that has stuck with me and became really important to the writing of this book um, is really one about paying attention to beings that aren't human um, in a way that is actually obvious, even if you live in a temperate climate, like the one I grew up in in Iowa, but is really, really important if you're living in, in the far North. Um, partly because you're not at the top of the food chain um, and partly because you really need to be attentive to what the weather is doing um, if you're going to make it through the day. And I, that's something that really stuck through me from that time. So tell us how you got from that uh, experience, that unusual experience for an 18-year-old, to decide to become an environmental historian. So this is one of those stories that when you tell it in... Uh, in hindsight, it looks like you had this great plan and it was all mapped out. Um, and in fact, <laughs> it felt nothing like that in, in process. Um, 
I did end up going to college eventually after spending some years in the Arctic. Um, and then after uh, university, my husband and I were Peace Corps volunteers. Um, and we ended up in Moldova, which is formerly part of the Soviet Union. And I was completely fascinated in Moldova by the ways in which um, this country that sort of came late to the Soviet project and was only enveloped in the Soviet Union after the Second World War, in many ways looked really familiar to me as a, a place that a kind of outside force had come in and tried to transform, much like the Canadian government has tried to do in the Arctic. And at the same time, how different um, the socialist kind of project looks in that, um, it, just in particulars, the built environment looks different, the kind of assumptions of the state. And I became really fascinated with the kind of socialist approach to modernity, uh, to development. Um, and then I realized that if I was interested in the Arctic, which is an interest that had never gone away um, from those first years, and if I was interested in socialism, that I should probably uh, study Russia because um, Russia has a lot of both, right? It has a lot of Northern territory um, and, and certainly one of the, the major experiments in having a socialist government. And then I ended up in grad school. Um, so you're an environmental historian. So first, um, tell us how you understand that field, that discipline. What is environmental history? And why is it an important field? Why is it a field that, that uh, people like you study and people like me should learn about? That's a great question. And thank you for asking that, because I think um, it's a field that's been around for about 50 years. So it's not new. But I also think it's less well known than lots of other branches of, of the historical profession. What environmental historians do at the most basic level is take seriously that people live in environments that include aspects of what we would call nature. So, you know, the waters, the animals, the growing things, the geology, kind of all of that um, kind of natural surroundings are important to the histories that we tell. Um, and sometimes are actually, you know, the, the, a central piece of the, the historical events that you're looking at. Um, and in some ways, it's a discipline that's attempting to take a, a division that exists in most modern universities where you have folks who study the natural sciences, you know, like biology and ecology and, and those sorts of things on one side of campus. And then often very physically, you have people who study human beings on the other side of campus. So the sociologists and the historians and the, the people in English departments, you know, we're, we're often in a completely different physical space from each other. And environmental historians are one of the fields that are trying to say, you know, you really can't pull people out of those other contexts. Um, and so we can borrow some tools from the natural sciences and we can take the tools that historians have. Um, and to me, it's a really exciting discipline to be writing in um, at the moment because, you know, many of the things that we're confronting now as a society have such a very clear tie to the ways that we interact with our environments, um, from thinking about sustainable food systems, obviously thinking about the climate crisis, um, thinking about how it is that we want to kind of bequeath the planet to the next generation of, of folks, um, are questions that actually you can shed some light on by looking at their historical precedents. So to, to give our um, viewers and, and listeners a sense of what this field is doing, um, would you be willing to read a bit from Floating Coast? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm gonna read actually just from the, 
the very beginning from the prologue um, to start where the book starts. Each morning in spring, the sandhill cranes rise pair by pair from the fields and marshes where they rest and turn their bodies north. They trill and honk on the wing, the sound filling the flyways of, the North, Ameri of North America. By April or May, they approach the Pacific Ocean's terminus, where the Seward and Chukchi peninsulas reach toward each other across the Bering Strait. 20,000 years ago, during the last ice age, the water passing beneath them was land. People hunted mammoths and caribou across a corridor of earth. Now, cleaved by just 50 miles of ocean, a geological and ecological unity remains in the territory encircled by the Mackenzie and Yukon rivers in North America and the Anadir and Kolyma rivers in Russia and the oceans north of St. Lawrence Island and south of Wrangell Island. From river to river and sea to sea, geographers call this country Beringia. I was 18 when I first heard the cranes standing on the runner of a dog sled 80 miles north of the Arctic Circle on Beringia's eastern edge. I remember stopping by a lake to watch a pair dance. The light had come back out of winter, running orange shadows into the waning snow where the birds arched their necks, opened curtains of wing and sang in throaty chuckling harmony. We were both migrants from the Great Plains, the cranes and I. They came north to make from the brief fecundity of Arctic summer, new feathers and new chicks. I came with less material longings. A Midwestern child raised on Jack London, I had visions of the Arctic as a beautiful but essentially static place to find nature untouched by people. My expectations were disciplined by an education that explained nature's past, the geology, biology, and ecology, separately from human history, from culture, economics, and politics. It was a divide that endowed human beings alone with the power to make change Nature was the thing acted upon. Living in Beringia collapsed this separation. I was apprenticed to a Gwich'in musher, a task that in its specifics was about sled dogs, but generally required learning how not to die. I did not know when I arrived that moose are dangerous when startled or where to find blueberries or the shape of an eddy where salmon congregate or the color of the cloud that brings the storm in the season when the bears leave their dens sandhill season. This did not mean that people did not change things. Caribou died because we killed them. Dogs were born because we wanted their labor. We lived in a village built by people from the cabins to the diesel generator that supplied electricity and the airplanes with their cargo of bread, soda, DVD, and tools. The village by its very existence was a testament to how people change each other. Settlement here was a colonial figment brought a century before by foreigners with their ideas of law, value, and the proper way to live. But those ideas, transformative as they were, did not alter the fact that the world I ran my dog team through was dense with action and transformation, only some of it human. My host father and his country taught me two things I have carried in the years since. The first is that if we pay attention, the world is not what we make of it, Rather, it is part of what makes us, our flesh and bones, and also our inclinations and hopes. In the Arctic, such attention is not an option, but is necessary. 
and it yields appreciation for the precarity, the contingency of simply being. The second is a question. In the North, I saw the power of people's ideas to change the earth, to build villages, to legislate relationships with places and animals. While we simultaneously lived by rules whose origins were not only human. It left me wondering at the relationship between ideal and material, between human and not. What power do human ideas have to change their surroundings? And how are people in turn shaped by their habitual relationships with the world? Put another way, what is the nature of history when nature is part of what makes history? This question has been my companion across many subsequent migrations north. What follows looks to Beringia's past to find a way of answering. Thank you so much for that reading. And I wanted to ask, in, at the very end of that passage, you asked this question, what is the nature of history when nature is a part of what makes history? And for me, one of the most striking things about this book is your emphasis throughout on the agency of nature and non-human life. Can you tell us how you have come to understand the agency of nature in Beringia? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think one of the things that was very striking to me when I first moved north um, and that I really was sort of habituated to quite early on um, because my job was to, to train sled dogs and to be kind of off in the, in the bush on my own a lot of the time. Um, was how very clear it was that the decisions that I made about my day were really only part of what went into whether or not um, my day came to pass the way that I envisioned it. Um, and of course, I learned that on a very personal scale. But what became clear to me as I started to look at the archives for this book and look at, you know, a long span of history, it covers about 200 years, is that some of those same kinds of forces are at play, even when you're talking about you know, large scale, technical, technically sophisticated governments trying to transform the Arctic um, and its people also. And that instead of seeing human beings as kind of waking up with an idea and going out individually or collectively and trying to make it come to pass, what you actually see is this constant set of negotiations between environments and the people that live in them. Um, and this is, of course, not remotely news to people who live in the Arctic, right? It might be a lesson that I am I am trying to bring back or rearticulate for audiences that might have forgotten it um, down to the south, I think, where it's a little easier to forget it, where our technology works a little bit better, um, where our you know more urbanized lives can kind of cover some of that up. Um, but it's it's certainly deeply embedded in the theories of history that. Um, the people from the Barren Strait tell about themselves. Um, and I think one of the things that was, um, it wasn't surprising to me, but it was deeply gratifying was how present those non-human forces were in the historical record. It did not take a lot of looking to find examples of whales changing their behavior because of how they were hunted or you know, ways in which the climate worked through other animal populations to alter or thwart people's plans. Um, it's really just right there on the surface um, if you are looking for it. So you explain in the book that um, both uh, the Russians and the Americans in the 19th century uh, went to this place in part because of those bowhead whales, because of uh, the energy and the, and the, 
the money that could be gained from uh, killing those whales. And you just mentioned that the whales adapted to this, uh, this effort on the part of the humans to fish them and to, to slaughter them. Tell us about that adaptation. What did the whales do? How did they respond to this assault on them by the humans? Yes, yeah, so one of the most kind of striking cases of, of natural agency that, that came up in the course of this research have to do with bowheads, which are species of whale that are adapted to live along the edge of sea ice. Um, they're, they're very northerly beasties by disposition. Um, and have long been hunted by indigenous peoples along the Bering Strait. So for most of, of human whale history, you know, maybe a hundred whales have died at the hands of um, indigenous hunters per year out of a population that's over 20,000. So human beings, not a huge threat to bowhead whales. The sea ice is a place where whales kind of feed along the edge of it. Um, and then in 1848, the first commercial whaling ship uh, from New Bedford, Massachusetts, which is actually just down the road from me here in New England, uh, made its way all the way around South America and up to the Pacific, um, gets up to the Bering Strait uh, to kill whales at a commercial scale for their blubber, uh, for whale oil, which was the kind of best source of uh, interior lighting at the time. And for the first couple of years, these commercial whalers found bowhead whales to be extremely easy to hunt. Um, very docile. You could sort of float your ship right up next to them. Sometimes they were killing more bowheads than they could even process um, quickly enough because they were just such, um, you know, the, the whalers logbooks are filled with descriptions about them being, you know, friendly and docile. And, and then in the early 1850s, so just a couple of years after the first whaling ship arrives, the logbooks really start to change the way they talk about these animals. And they start saying that the whales are wild and the whales are shy and the whales are canny. And underneath those descriptions, in particular, um, the whalers talk about how the bowheads are swimming into the sea ice as soon as they see ships. Um, so they've learned that these, you know, Moby Dick types, Moby Dick style tall wooden ships are dangerous. Um, and they also know that the sea ice is a form of protection. Um, if you are in a wooden ship, of course, you don't want to get terribly close to the sea ice because it's a real hazard for wrecking. Um, and the whales um, sort of figured this out and seem to have been able to um, either learn it very quickly individually or were communicating it somehow because it was a, a broad phenomenon in the Arctic. Uh, to the point that the whalers actually left the Bering Strait for several years in the 1850s. They gave up. Um, it was just too dangerous to try to hunt them. Um, and this is a kind of interpretation of the whale behavior that is both supported by the ways that indigenous whalers understand bowheads, which is as incredibly sophisticated, sentient, actually ethical animals that have a, um, the capacity to kind of judge the humans that are interacting with them based on their behavior toward each other. Um, and it's also supported by kind of contemporary marine biology, which has started to understand whales um, as very intelligent, sentient animals with really high communicative ability. So, you know, not just animals that adapt through um, passing on genetic material, um, but animals that adapt in real time by kind of telling each other or learning from each other um, how to deal with new kinds of threats. 
Um, so I, I kind of use both of these very different knowledge traditions to look at the sources that are that are in the logbooks, and they have been in the logbooks for 200 years, saying you know the, what the bowhead whales did is learn that certain kinds of hunters were a threat um, and learn to avoid that threat pretty directly. So another part of your story is how these two um, ideologies, the ideology of capitalism on the American side and the ideology of socialism once uh, Russia had gone become a Soviet, uh, uh, become a communist country, how those two ideologies were brought to bear on this location uh, and how the ideologies themselves had to confront these kinds of uh, the, the kinds of realities of the environment and the agents that are there. Um, so let me ask you about um, what in the case of on the Russian side, on the Soviet side, um, what what happened to this effort on the part of, of the Soviets um, when they when they confronted these realities, but also what has happened since the collapse of the Soviet Union? Yeah, that question gets a little bit at what I'm going to talk about next week. Um, one of the things I found really interesting about this the Soviet experience in Chukotka is that in many ways it ends up looking a lot like the American experience on the Seward Peninsula. Um, so they're often very similar to each other, even though ideologically, you know, all of the rhetoric is that these are completely different things. And in fact, arch nemeses for much of the 20th century. Um, and some of the ways in which they come to look like each other really have to do with adapting to um, an environment where the, the kind of basis, basic assumptions of both of these economies, that you're going to have large scale agriculture that's mechanized, which is something that both the United States and Russia or the Soviet Union were interested in doing, and that you will have um, increasing industrialization, um, which is possible in the Arctic, but has more challenges um, because of the, the cold for one thing and, and kind of distance from large scale fossil fuel production in the these particular parts of the Arctic in particular. Um, those are under such pressure uh, that the United States and the Soviet Union end up kind of resembling each other in many ways. Um, which is not what I expected to find. I actually expected to see more difference than similarity. Um, however, in many ways, the, the differences that do exist um, are particularly visible um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union or are visible to me because I only experience uh, the Chukchi Peninsula after the fall. I you know, wasn't there when it was still Soviet. And it's very visibly different in the kind of built environment that the Soviet Union invested in. Um, the, the kind of Soviet drive to have all people in the Soviet Union be equal, which was you know, a really core component of the, of the project. You know, it was a dearly held wish of the Bolsheviks to kind of create this kingdom of equality on earth. Um, meant that the Soviet Union subsidized and invested in its really distant Arctic territories to a degree that looks very different than the United States. So housing complexes that look like housing complexes in Moscow, very small communities that have schools and clinics and roads and kind of other sorts of infrastructure um, that even now, you know, 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, much of that infrastructure is still there. And much of that infrastructure has never come to pass in the United States, um, which tends to pay attention to 
Alaska, particularly Alaska outside of a couple, you know, urban areas, only if there's a major resource rush. Um, so you might get a big boom around Nome because there's a discovery of gold at the end of the 19th century. You get a big boom at Prudhoe Bay um, in the 1970s because of oil. Um, but many parts of Alaska um, are relatively underserved and underfunded at the state and federal levels. Um, and there isn't a lot of market interest in developing those places either. So they, they don't have quite the level of infrastructure. Um, so you can kind of see the ways in which the Soviet Union's desire to create equal citizens, even though it had all sorts of problems in its actual execution, um, still kind of has this presence on the landscape. Um, so the book is, I mean, among other things, it's an amazing work of historical research. And, you know, it's got, it's got a whole bunch of footnotes like most academic books have. And, you know, it's got all this ar archival research that you've done. But I think uh, even from the, uh, the excerpt that you read earlier, it's clear that you wrote this book not just for an academic audience. It aims to speak more broadly can you say why it was important for you to write a book that could do that, that could speak beyond the walls of the academy? Yeah, so I um, I felt a certain responsibility to this particular history and the um, particularly, I think, a responsibility to talking about the ways in which these big ideological projects, you know, one of which is very much my patrimony, right? I grew up in the United States and it's kind of, you know, democratic capitalist glory, what they look like when they're exported to places where they are not um, kind of naturally at home, right? These are, these are not indigenous or local ways of conducting life. Um, and yet they've had enormous impact when they're sent up north um, and have a lot of monetary and state power put behind them. Um, and it disrupts human lives and it disrupts ecological systems at a broad scale. Um, and I felt a real kind of responsibility to that story as somebody who kind of has benefited from one of those ideological systems wealth for my whole life. Um, and also, in some ways, because it's a part of the world that um, you know, I get up every morning thinking about, but most academic historians don't. So even if I'm gonna reach the most academic audience with the story, I have to ask them to care about it in ways that other kinds of historical stories, I think, um, are a little closer to home. So you know, if you write about places where more people live, they have an affinity to it. If you write about places that are more familiar in terms of their political, importance or persons that everyone knows, you know, people see why they should pull that off of a shelf. Um, and I wasn't sure even academic historians would pull this off of a shelf um, unless I could write them into the story, right? Show them why they should care about it. Um, but, but yes, my, I had always hoped that the audience would be broader than that because I think, um, I think it's a part of the world where those of us who live in temperate places have been connected to for you know, two centuries now um, and are even more connected to because of climate change um, and connected to in ways that uh, we bear some responsibility for um, and that storytelling is a way to, to show people what that actually looks like um, and therefore maybe how to take responsibility for it in the future. 
So you've just mentioned uh, climate change, and I was wondering, you, you know, you've been going to this region of the world for 20 years. Um, how, what kind of changes have you seen in the climate as the result of climate change over that time? One thing I realized as I was, was writing this book is that um, there's a kind of uh, weather that I experienced when I first went north um, that's extremely rare now um, and is unlikely to be common again in my lifetime. Um, and that therefore my own experience has become its own kind of archive, which was a, a really eerie thought because generally speaking, that's not how we think of the climate operating. Um, the kinds of things that I have seen, um, particularly in the interior around Old Crow where I originally went to um, are, quite a bit of permafrost loss that you can see. Um, it causes lakes to drain. It's causing wide scale uh, erosion along rivers in ways that is um, really hard on fish populations. And it's causing this kind of eerie um, increase in growth, um, which in some ways seems like a great thing because don't we all love you know, plants and, um, but can have some really mixed impacts in Arctic environments and because it makes it difficult for some kinds of Arctic animals to move. Um, so caribou get stuck in the bushes literally because you know, they're not used to, to moving through quite so much shrubbery. Um, and then out along the coasts, um, just the last, the last three to five years have seen such a dramatic retreat and change in sea ice patterns. Um, Everybody I know who you know has longer experience there than I do, they have sort of run out of superlatives because it's each year it feels like the the ice is uh, further away from where it's supposed to be when it's supposed to be. There's open water the last couple of years along the Bering Strait in the middle of the winter. Um, you should be able to walk between Russia and the United States over solid sea ice that time of year, and there's been big patches of open water. Um, and these, of course, have all sorts of carry-on effects for indigenous communities that use the sea ice. Um, it's a very important part of how people get around and how they hunt. Um, and it's also um, leaves a lot of questions about what's going to happen to ice-adapted animals like seals and walruses um, as it becomes rarer. So it's, um, I feel like every, like every March of every year, the kind of annual sea ice report comes in and each year it, the sort of maximum extent is lower um, and it has this just sort of feeling of um, this really eerie feeling of watching something fade in, in real time. Well Beth Chiba, we've come to the end of our time. On that uh, somewhat ominous note, <laughs> um, I want to thank you again for joining us. I want to urge our viewers and our listeners to read this book, Floating Cost and a Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait, and to remind you uh, that next week, um, Bathsheba DeMuth, Assistant Professor of History and Environment and Society at Brown, uh, will be speaking on the topic, The Reindeer at the End of the World. That's on May 4th, 2021, as a guest of the Oregon Humanities Center as this year's Robert D. Clark Lecturer in the Humanities. Thanks, Bathsheba DeMuth, for speaking with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Paul. Thanks, everyone, for watching.